The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 19. Since the beginning of our journey through the Gospel of John, we've entitled this overarching series, Behold His, meaning Jesus, Behold His glory. And that's been our overarching title because that is John's overarching point in his gospel. From beginning to end, what John, our author, does is he holds up Jesus like a diamond and and rotates him that we might see every facet of of his glory. John wants us to behold the glory of Jesus and to believe. He wants that for us because that's what's happened to him. He actually says that at the end of our passage today, that his goal, his aim in bearing witness about Jesus is so that we might believe. This is what happened to John and the other disciples in their own life. They beheld the glory of Jesus and they believed. He told us that right from the beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14, quintessential verse of the first chapter of the entire gospel and of our entire series. John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right there, John chapter 1, verse 14, he's echoing the language of Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, since everybody knows off the top of their head exactly what was going on right there, in Exodus 34, Moses has just asked God if he can see his glory. And God says, look, no one can see me and live, but here's what I'll do. I will show my glory to you in the way that I can. I will cover you up. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you up and I will pass by. And when I pass by, I will proclaim my name. With word, I will reveal my glory, who I am, my goodness, my greatness, my beauty. That's what glory is. It's the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the beauty of God on display. Glory is beholding beauty. God says to Moses, this is what I will do. And he does it in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. God passes by and proclaims his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who I am. This is my glory. That final phrase, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You want to know the Greek equivalent? Full of grace and truth. Abounding, full, steadfast love, grace, faithfulness, truth, truthfulness. John, in chapter 1, verse 14, is echoing the words of Exodus 34. Why? So that we might know that the word that God proclaimed to Moses to reveal himself in all of his glory, that word has put on flesh. Jesus Christ is the word, the revelation of God in the flesh. He came to reveal the God who is full of, who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the God who is full of grace and truth. If you want to behold the glory of God, you look at Jesus. 
and you behold and you believe he is God in the flesh. That, that's the entire goal of John's gospel. And it comes to a climax in the cross. John's whole gospel has been headed towards this hill that we call Calvary. Because that's where he believes we most clearly see Christ's glory. Jesus himself has taught us this throughout the gospel. You want to see my glory most poignantly on display? It's coming in the cross. Jesus said in John 3.14, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He said that in a context where he's talking about his sacrificial death and that when that moment happens, people will see him for who he is. They'll behold his glory, who he is. He gets more explicit with it later on in John 8, 28. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. You'll see who I am. You'll see my glory. And in John 12 and verse 32, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. People from every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. They're going to see and behold who I am, the glory of who I am, when I am lifted up at the cross. John emphasizes that the cross is the place. The crucifixion is the moment when we most clearly see Jesus' glory. Where did John get that idea? It doesn't come naturally. You behold a victim of crucifixion, the word that comes to mind is gore, not glory. Where's John get this idea? Isaiah 52 and verse 13 says, My servant, which had long been identified as the coming Messiah, my servant, servant shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, glorified. John looks at Isaiah 52, 13, and he believes that this plan that's been prophesied has always been about Christ crucified, for him to be lifted up so he could be exalted, glorified, lifted up upon the cross to bleed so that we might behold and believe. New Testament scholars agree about this across the board. Brilliant New Testament scholar by the name of D.A. Carson says it like this. He says, in the theology of the fourth gospel, which is John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in the theology of the fourth gospel, the glory of the Son is nowhere more brilliantly displayed to a fallen world than in the shame and suffering of the cross. It's not alone. Richard Bauckham says that in John's gospel, the cross is the supreme revelation on earth of God's glory. It is what John 1.14 especially refers to. John 1.14, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Bauckham says that's especially talking about the cross. If you want to behold the Christ that is full of grace and truth, you've got to see it in the cross. How? How are you supposed to see glory amidst gore? How are you supposed to see grace through one who's been judged guilty? How are you, how are you supposed to see truth in the midst of a situation that looks like tragedy? How do we look at the cross? If somebody asked you, 
You worship a crucified Christ. How do you look at the cross and see glory? I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying like, take that person and skip them over the cross and get them to the resurrection. Well, we see glory in the cross because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Point conceded, but let's not go there yet. That's next week. How do you look just at the cross and see the beauty, the glory, the majesty of of Jesus? That's, That's our question this morning. We've got to know the answer. We must know the answer because the cross stands at the center of our faith. It's what shapes our faith. It's what secures our faith. If we cannot behold beauty, if we cannot behold glory in the cross, we will not be able to behold the glory of God truly anywhere. If there's no glory in the cross, then there is really no God called Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake. So, so how do we do this? How can we look at the cross and behold the beauty of the crucified Christ? I think that's exactly what John is going to show us through six scenes or six pictures of the crucifixion. We're going to take them one at a time and see the glory of Jesus in each. So let's begin by seeing the glory of Jesus in the first scene. John chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. So they, it's the soldiers, it was right after Jesus has been sentenced by Pilate. So they took Jesus and they went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So here's number one of six. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ goes to his death. I'm hoping that that sentence sounds glorious by the time we're done. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ goes to his death. So right here we see Jesus. He's being led out like a common criminal, bearing his own cross. That would mean the horizontal cross beam. It's not like the one that we have here. It would have been a huge beam, probably weighing 100 pounds plus. It would have been placed onto the open wounds of Christ that he bore across his back, and he'd be paraded through the streets. Partly as punishment, partly as a warning to all the watchers that, that they should keep themselves from committing the same crimes lest they serve the same sentence. That's why they did it this way. He's let out like a criminal, and he's taken to a place where criminals are killed. Golgotha, or some of you may be more familiar with the Latinized version, Calvary. In English, both words mean the same thing, skull. Some scholars think that this hill was called a skull because of its shape. Maybe it resembled a skull. Others will say, no, the thing was probably littered with skulls because it was an execution Sight, whatever the case is, the point is that it was a place of death. That's what the name, regardless of its origin, that's what the name is meant to communicate. And this is where they're leading Jesus. At least that's what it looks like on the surface. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks throughout Jesus' arrest and trials, you know that John, our author, has been beckoning us to see under the surface to see what's really happening. 
He's going to keep doing that today through the cross. And and through everything we've seen, he's been aiming for us to see Christ's sovereignty. That no matter what it looks like on the surface, Christ is the one really in control. The soldiers aren't leading Jesus to Golgotha. God the Father is sovereignly leading God the Son by the power of God the Spirit to the place he had always planned to come. The cross. Saying it that way reminds me of a, another story in Scripture where you've got another father who led another son up a hill with, with his son bearing wood on his back for his own sacrifice. If you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, you've got Abraham leading Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his own son. Isaac's got the wood on his back. He's doing it because this is the command of God. And Isaac doesn't know that's what's happening. And the interesting thing, one of the most interesting points in the story is in verse 7. Isaac says this to his father. He says, Father, behold, we have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. The Lord did provide a symbolic substitute that day on Mount Moriah. Provided a ram to take Isaac's place so that Isaac didn't have to die. The ram died. Isaac could go free. But now, on this day, in John 19, on Mount Calvary, now Isaac's question is finally and most truly answered. Not with a symbol, not with a sign, but with the very Son of God. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? I say, Isaac, look across time, look across space, look to the cross, and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like that ram died in your place, Isaac, this lamb, the Lamb of God, dies in my place and in, in your place. Christ is the Lamb that God provided for Himself. And on this day in Jerusalem, don't forget, this is happening right in the midst of the Feast of Passover. And on this day, this Friday, in Jerusalem, just as the lambs for Passover are being sacrificed in the temple, the true lamb is being sacrificed upon the cross, sovereignly sacrificing himself. Christ is not being led to Calvary. He's going there himself to the place called the skull, a place of death. You only go to a place of death for one thing, to die. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ goes to his death. Does that sentence still not sound glorious? Does it still not sound like good news? Perhaps it will. Perhaps it will help for John to show us scene two. Look at verse 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus. 
between them. So number two, behold his glory. The crucified Christ is damned. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ is damned. Jesus' hands were nailed to the crossbeam that he had been carrying, which was then hoisted up and affixed to a vertical post, and then his feet would be nailed to that post. The purpose of that is so that he could push up or pull up in order to get air. Crucifixion kills you by asphyxiation. You suffocate. Your chest cavity eventually begins caving in. And unless you can push or pull to get upright to breathe, you'll die. And so they make it possible to prolong your suffering as much as you possibly can. Crucifixions were sometimes known to last for days. And it doesn't matter what you do, whether you're hanging, pushing, or pulling. At all points, you are always in pain. Like, it is masterfully designed cruelty. The kind that only humans are capable of. And it was so horrific that, that Roman citizens actually couldn't even be crucified unless there was direct permission or a command from the emperor himself. Like This was reserved for the worst kind of criminal. And right here, Christ is counted as among them. Literally, among them. He, he hangs between two others. Is this to emphasize he is the most guilty? He hangs between two others. They're condemned. They're damned to death for their crimes. But what is Jesus' crime? Like Throughout the Gospel that we've been reading, we know that He's innocent and we're not the only ones. Pilate, who sentenced Him because His hands were tied, He knows that He's innocent. If you read in some of the other Gospels, like the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that even one of the criminals who's crucified beside Him knows that He's innocent. Christ wasn't damned for any sin of his own. So for whose? Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says, He, the servant, the Messiah of God, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet He bore the sin of many. He was numbered, counted, placed, put amongst the transgressors, crucified between two others. As if he was one of them. But he had no transgressions to bear of his own. But he still bore transgressions. The transgressions of many. Yours. Mine. As our substitute, Christ was counted as a criminal so we could be free. He was damned so that we don't have to be. I, I don't know about you. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. And I know what kind of messed up stuff goes on up here and in here. And I deserve to be damned. I deserve for God's good and loving wrath to condemn me. And yes, you heard me right. God's good and loving wrath. He's good and loving wrath. God is good and He loves His creation. And in His goodness, He loves His creation so much He will not allow sin and death and disease and the destruction that all of it brings to curse His creation forever. I love my children. Mess with them and evoke my wrath. 
because I loved them. I would not be a good father if you came up and punched my kid and I went, huh, that's all right. Better luck next time, buddy. No. God is good and he does what's right and what's just and he loves his creation and it is loving for him to remove the sin and the death and the destruction that it brings. It is right for him to remove me and my sin. We call removal from this world one thing, death. My sin deserves, it's the right thing, the good thing, the loving thing for God to do is to remove me. My sin deserves death. It deserves to be damned. But behold his glory. He doesn't condemn me. The crucified Christ is damned in my place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God the Father made Christ to be sin. Who knew no sin? He knew no sin of his own, and he made him to be sin for our sake, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. The reformer Martin Luther called this the wondrous exchange. Christ took our sin. He didn't have any of his own, so he took ours and he gave us his righteousness. We didn't have any of our own. And he gave us his. He became sin for us so that we might be right with God. Do you see the glory, the beauty, the goodness, the greatness of the crucified Christ? We're meant to. We're meant to see. John makes it explicit in scene number three. Just in case it doesn't look glorious that Christ is going to his death, just in case it doesn't look glorious to us that he's being damned, John makes it explicit through classic Irony. We have watched John use irony all throughout this gospel. And through irony, he's going to declare to us the reality of what's going on. Look at verses 19 to 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So number three, behold his glory, the crucified Christ is declared. Behold his glory, the crucified Christ is declared. It was normal for the crimes of of someone being crucified, it was normal for them to be written on a placard. And it would either be hung around their neck as they're paraded through the streets or carried in front of the cross. Later, it'd be affixed to the cross. It was another way of, of warning the population, warning the passerbys about committing similar crimes. And if you want everybody to get the message, then, then you've got to include it in all the languages spoken in your region. And we see Pilate doing that. Aramaic, it's the common local language of Judea. Latin is the language of the Roman Empire, the, Ro or the Roman army, the Roman officials and government officials. Greek, Greek is like the lingua franca, the common language throughout the entire empire. Pilate makes sure everybody gets the warning. But the purpose behind Pilate's sign is more than a mere warning. He means this as an insult to the Jewish leadership. 
Like they had pressured him politically into crucifying Jesus, and so he aims to turn around and mock them before the world. This, this is their poor and, and pitiful king. And no matter how much they ask him, he would not change his wording. I've written what I've written. In the Greek, that's in the perfect tense. Let me get nerdy with some vocab for, or with some grammar for you for just a second. The, the perfect tense is past action with present ramifications, ongoing effects in the present. In other words, what Pilate is saying is, what I have written stands written and will not change. It will stay written. Can you feel John, our author, almost smirking through the text? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and that is not changing. It was true. It is true. It will be true. Can you feel the Johannine irony? There's a party word for you. It's very Johannine. This means it's like John-esque. Can you feel the Johannine irony as as Pilate proclaims the truth about who Jesus is? Like Pilate means these words as revenge on the Jews before the world, but God uses them as revelation of Jesus to the world. Jesus was and is the king of God's people. And even as he's crucified, he's being glorified as the king who dies for his people. Come on, come on, come all mankind, no matter where you're from, no matter what language you speak, Aramaic, Latin, Greek, doesn't matter. The good news is for all, and it's being proclaimed to all from the cross. The death and damnation of Jesus Christ is no tragedy, but victory. For here is the King of the Jews who dies for you. Behold his glory. The cross declares the crucified Christ as king of the world. As king to the world. And just in in case we're still unsure about all of this, John makes sure that we know all of this is happening by design. Jesus goes to his death by design. He is damned by design. He is declared by design. This is what we see in scene number four, verses 23 and 24. Look at it with me. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it But cast lots, almost think of like a dice rolling game. Let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Number four, behold his glory. The crucified Christ displays God's design. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ displays God's design. This is such a small detail, isn't it? Soldiers dividing up Jesus' clothes. It was common for them to do this with criminals who obviously aren't going to need their clothes anymore. They divide them up. A little bonus on top of their paycheck. And yet John, such a small detail, and yet John wants us to know that even the details were by design. Psalm 22 and verse 18, they divide 
my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John sees the words of Psalm 22, the words of King David when he was in a situation where he was oppressed by his enemies and it felt like a death sentence on his life and he describes his current state as being like the site of an execution. John sees final fulfillment of David's words in the cross. That's what he tells us. This was to fulfill the scriptures. All throughout the gospel of John, the closer you get to the cross, the more you will read the phrase, that the scriptures may be fulfilled, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. You see it a lot in this passage. Just jump down with me to verse 28, 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. Psalm 69, 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. John looks at that and says, fulfilled. And he's not done. Jump down to verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. If their legs are broken, they can't push up anymore. They will suffocate faster, die faster. They want them off the cross because Deuteronomy 21 says that anyone who's dead and hanged on a tree overnight brings a curse and uncleanliness on the whole land. And they're like, nope, according to our law, this is a high feast day. They can't be left on the cross overnight. Let's speed this thing up, break everybody's legs. Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs, which takes a little bit more effort. But one of the soldiers, to make sure here, pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, hemorrhagic fluids. Jesus was already dead. The fluids had started to separate, clearer serum towards the top, deep red towards the bottom. So if you pierce at the bottom, they flow out in layers. He's been dead. 35. He who saw it, John's talking about himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. It's a reference to Exodus 12, the Passover lamb. You weren't allowed to break any of the Passover lamb's bones. Or he could also be referring probably to both. He's also probably referring to Psalm 34, where David in another prophetic psalm talks about his bones not being broken. Verse 37, and again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they've pierced. That's Zechariah 12 and verse 10, which talks about God's people looking upon him, the God who they have pierced. Do you feel John's emphasis on design here? The cross is no accident. It's designed by God down to the details of taking a drink and dice rolling. Like not a bone would be broken. No place on Jesus' flesh would be pierced apart from the sovereign plan of God. John is declaring that the death of Jesus as the one damned in our place was all by design. Behold the glory. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ displays God's design. Why did God design it this way? What, what, 
Why did the triune God design this? For His glory and our good. He loves us. Why did He design it this way? He loves us. And so He is giving us through the cross. He's giving us Himself in all of His glory. He loves us. See that in scene number 5. Look at verses 25 and 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother and His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Number five, behold his glory. The crucified Christ displays the deepest love. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ displays the deepest love. So we've got four women here. They're contrasted purposefully with our four soldiers. We've got four soldiers. We're sitting by the cross, dividing up Christ's clothes. And then we've got these four women standing by the cross so that they might cling to Christ. You see the contrast here. Like for these soldiers, Jesus is nothing more than a means to something they consider valuable. He's nothing more than a means to, to temporary things. But, but these faithful women, they don't want anything from Christ. They just want Christ. They want Him. They're there for Him. And that's what He gives them. Himself. His love. We see it through the interaction that He has with His mom. We haven't seen Mary, the mother of Jesus, since John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, at a wedding that ran out of wine, Mary shows up asking Jesus to help them out, asking for something. And Jesus' reply is, my hour has not yet come. We don't see her again until John 19 when his hour has come. And now he's giving her something without her asking. She doesn't want something from him. Now she just wants him, and that's what he gives her. As he dies, Jesus provides for Mary's life. It's a smaller picture of what he's doing on the cross for all of us as he dies, providing for our life. He directs his mother, Mary, to look into the eyes of, of the disciple that he loves so much, John. And Jesus speaks these words that are reminiscent of an ancient adoption formula. He says, woman, behold your son. And then to John, behold your mother. You see what's going on right here. Woman, in this moment, you are not losing a son. What I am doing will provide for you more sons than you can imagine. I, I'm creating a new family, and in my death, I'm providing for your every need. See what he's saying to John. John, in my death, I am empowering you to love as family those who aren't bound to you by your blood, but they're bound to you by my blood. Jesus' death displays his deepest love for us. Not just to die and be damned in our place, but to adopt us into his family and to fill us with the very love that he is putting on display. This is the new reality he is putting on display with Mary and John. I'm binding you together as family because of me and what I'm doing in this moment. 
I'm adopting you into the family of God. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Behold the glory of, behold his glory. The crucified Christ displays the deepest love which he is pouring out for our deepest good. And that takes us to the final scene, scene number six. Look at verse 30 alone. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's one word in Greek, tetelestai. It's in the perfect tense. Accomplished past action with present ongoing ramifications. It has been finished. It is finished. It is always going to be finished. He said it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Number six, behold his glory. The crucified Christ defeats death. Our deepest good. This is our deepest good. The crucified Christ defeats death. It is finished. This this is no cry of defeat. It's a victory shout. Like Jesus is not in this moment saying, oh, the, the, the pain's finally over, the suffering's finally over, all of that's finally, it's finished. No, whenever he says it is finished, or better yet, it is accomplished, it's won, it's done, it's completed. Whenever he says that, it's a victory cry. It is finished. What, what, what does he mean by it? What has he finished? I think all we have to do is go back just a little bit to chapter 17 and verse 4. And Jesus is praying, and I think we get some clarity on what he means by it is finished. John 17 and verse 4, Jesus prays, Father, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, finished, completed, same verb that he cries from the cross, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What is finished? All of it. All the the work you gave to what is accomplished victoriously? The entire plan of the triune God to send Christ in the flesh, to live a perfect life revealing God to his people, now to suffer and die in their place. That plan has not failed. Christ has not faltered. He has finished it all. You see the glory of Christ. See glory in His victory cry. It's finished. He dies victoriously. John emphasizes that. He bows His head. He gives up His spirit. He gives up His breath. That's the same word in Greek. Pneuma, spirit, breath. He gives it up. His breath, His spirit. No one takes it from Him. Just like he said in John 10, 17, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. He laid it down freely. He took our death so that we wouldn't have to die. For all who trust in him, who embrace him as their treasure, his death counts as yours. Behold his glory. The crucified Christ has defeated death. But that's not all. We don't have a seventh scene, but we have a seventh truth. Because it's the flip side of that coin that he's defeated death. Number seven, behold his glory, the crucified Christ is our life. He's not just defeated death. He's given you life. It's the wondrous exchange, right? He gave up his breath so that we might truly breathe. 
He gave up his spirit that our spirit might have life. He went to the cross to die so that we might come to the cross and live eternally. Jesus has died the death that our sins deserve. Now we get to live forever with Him as our treasure. The the cross has reversed our destiny. Do you see that? I, who told you just a few minutes ago, deserve nothing but death and damnation, have been reversed to get life now and forever. The cross reverses our destiny. It reverses everything. We, we have a word. The Bible has a word for this reversal that the cross does. We call it redemption. It, redemption, the, the reversal of the effects of sin and death. This has been the eternal plan of God. And you see it unfolding in Scripture all the way back as far as Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin and death and disease and destruction all enter into creation for the first time, when Adam and Eve rebelliously ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that tree that was alive but on it hung death, and they ate and died, God reversed it all at the cross, a tree that was dead but on it hung life. And you're invited week after week to come to this table and to eat of the bread, which reminds us of the broken flesh of Christ, and to drink of the cup, which reminds us of his blood poured out for you. You're invited to this tree to come and eat and live. Do you see how the cross reverses everything, redeems everything? Do you see what this this means? I'll just... I'll just mention two things, two things to close. The way that the cross reverses, flips everything. One, the cross shapes our faith, making it cruciform. The cross shapes, it flips, it reverses the entire way you think about the life of faith. It it shapes our faith, making it cruciform. In other words, cruciform just means shaped like the cross. Our lives of faith are shaped like the cross, What do I mean by that? They don't look glorious. They don't look victorious. Because we we are a people who give up our lives, who lay down our lives, who take up our cross. We give up our lives for the sake of declaring the crucified Christ to the the world. Let me get specific examples for you. If, If the loss of my health means that others will see the strength of Jesus as he sustains me. I call that victory. If if suffering and persecution are my lot, as long as I glorify Christ, I am living true life. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, the strength of Christ is on display. When we see our entire life of faith through the lens of the cross, it reverses and redeems all things. The things in your life that the world would look at and say, those are places of defeat. Through the cross, they become places of victory. Cancer is not a place of defeat. Divorce is not a place of defeat. If you were abused, that's not a place of defeat. Through the cross, Christ redeems and reverses all things. 
You, you see all of your life through the cross. It turns places of defeat into places of victory, places of weakness into places of strength. The areas in your life where you are weak and feel untalented and unqualified are the very areas that God loves to use you. It's in these jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4 says. In these jars of clay, weak vessels, that we have this treasure to show that this all-surpassing power comes from God and not from us. It's good that I'm a weak and broken vessel. Because that means that when God works through me, it's just all the more obvious that he's on display. I hate public speaking, Shades Valley. That's true. I swore I would never pastor. I never wanted to teach. Nothing. This is God's fault. Your places of weakness, he shows his strength. The cross reverses it. Places of death are reversed into places of life. The cross shapes our faith, our life of faith, making it cruciform, making it look like the cross. This is why we have to behold the glory of the crucified Christ. Otherwise, we will despise the crucified life. If we can't see glory there, we will never see glory. We will never see God working his strength through our weakness, bringing victory out of defeat, life out of death. You won't see it. When you struggle with infertility, you won't possibly see any way that God could be at work for his glory and your good. When someone close to you dies, you won't see any way that God could redeem that situation. When you remain single longer than you want to, or even for the entirety of your life, you won't possibly see how that could be leveraged for the kingdom of God, for His glory and your good. We've got to be able to behold the glory of the cross so that we look at our entire life of faith through that lens. So number one, the cross shapes our faith, making it cruciform. Number two, the way the cross reverses and redeems. The cross secures our faith giving us confidence. It shapes our faith, making it cruciform, and it secures our faith, giving us confidence. How? No matter what happens in my life, I know that God is able to use it for his glory. How do I know that? Because he did it with a cross. The greatest place of death and shame, and humiliation, the greatest moment of evil that's ever happened in the history of the world, the murder of the sinless Son of God. He used that for His glory and our good. If He can do it there, He can do it anywhere. This is why we have to behold the glory of the crucified Christ. Otherwise, I will have no security in my life when anything remotely goes wrong. I won't possibly be able to see how God is actually still with me and working. The cross stands as our rock-solid guarantee that we have a God who is able to reverse and redeem all things. Shades, shades. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Defeat or victory? Shame or or the fame of our king, gore or, or glory. Behold the glory 
of the crucified Christ. He is our life. Amen.